Welcome to an episode of Explain Blockchain. This podcast is about blockchain technologies and its latest developments. My name is Peter and let's roll the intro. Alright and welcome to another episode of Explain Blockchain. Today is a little bit different from the rest. Today I have an interview for you with Charles Hoskinson. Charles co-founded the Ethereum project and later founded the Cardano Foundation and IOHK, the company that designs, builds and maintains the Cardano platform. Next to his studios as CEO of IOHK, he also serves as the director of the Bitcoin Education Project, where his fo work focuses on educating people about cryptocurrency and the importance of decentralization. I personally find his work very informative and interesting to watch, which is why I'm very pleased to welcome Charles to the show. Thank you very much for coming, Charles. Thank you for having me on. So first of all, for people who do not know you or the Cardano project, could you briefly introduce yourself and the Cardano project? Okay, so I've been in the uh, cryptocurrency space now for about seven years, give or take. I started as a, a miner of Bitcoin and an, an investor. I bought a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, I decided to completely pivot my lifestyle and make uh, cryptocurrencies my profession. So in 2013, I started uh, a company called Invictus Innovations with Dan Larimer, and we created BitShares. Uh, I was only briefly there, and I left, and what I'm usually known for is my work with Ethereum. Uh, I started that with Vitalik Buterin and six other people. And then after Ethereum, I started a company called IOHK, and that was kind of my passion company where... I wanted to do a lot of really interesting engineering, but I also wanted to do a lot of science. So we actually write papers and put those papers through peer review and we partner with universities and so forth. And uh, the current flagship project of IOHK is the uh, Cardano protocol, which in our view is kind of the first third generation cryptocurrency. So we started Cardano back in 2015 as kind of an open five-year research project. It was almost structured like a DARPA project where we'd say, let's do a huge amount of R&D up front and answer a lot of very foundational questions and kind of have no assumptions. We'll just clean room this whole thing and learn from the last uh, few years uh, that the cryptocurrency space blew up. And then moving beyond that, uh, let's go ahead and, and implement a cryptocurrency that actually can satisfy the business and technical requirements of each of these categories. So on the scalability side, uh, basically the system performs at a very reasonable rate regardless of how many users you have. So you know you can think of cognitively models like BitTorrent where more people who are downloading a video the faster you get it or at the very least it doesn't slow down the uh, the video download. Uh, you know so that's a property we'd like to have and so as more users are entering the system more transactions are happening the system stays at the same performance level or it gets faster. In terms of interoperability, it should be able to talk to the legacy financial system, and it should be able to talk to uh, other cryptocurrencies. And when I say talk to, that means you can move state and value uh, between our chain and uh, to other chains without possessing a full copy of the, uh, the other chain. And then finally, uh, put on-chain governance tools that allow us to actually have an on-chain treasury, kind of like what Dash and Pivx and others have done and have a uh, system that allows you to uh, arrive at a consensus for how to modify the protocol so that when you have improvement proposals, there is a kind of a coherent, almost like constitutional amendment style uh, way of upgrading instead of saying, we'll just have a beneficent leader or every time we have a controversial upgrade, uh, the results in a fork. 
But this um, poses a question to me because the blockchain ecosystem, so to say, has a big problem since um, it, it had such a big adoption, as you said, and that is the scalability. Um, you already touched on that a little bit. Could I just ask, um, in a talk that I watched from you, you broke down the scalability issue into three perspectives, the transactions per seconds, the network or bandwidth um, requirements, and the storage requirements. Um, what are Cardano's solution to these three problems? Yeah, so the vanity metric of our space is generally TPS. And uh, especially in 2017 and all throughout 2018, you just saw all these projects running around. And they say, oh, I can do uh, you know, X hundred thousand TPS or something like that. And that's, that's pretty meaningless. It's like RPM in an engine. It's like, well, there's a lot of things going on there. And you can certainly run your engine at a high rate. But, uh, you know, you, you could be on a, a small Honda engine versus, you know, a big semi truck. These are, these are fundamentally different things. So uh, the payload that goes into the system is much more meaningful than the raw processing rate that the system is capable of handling. Uh, but there are consequences with those payloads. There's a handling, uh, but there are consequences with those payloads. There's a world of a difference, Alice to Bob, or a gigantic smart contract with tons of tail calls, uh, you know, that runs uh, DAO-like structure, you know, that's, uh, that's got hundreds of thousands of inter interactions and so forth. I mean, both these things could conceptually be a single air quotes transaction, but they're, they're very different animals and they need to be treated differently. Uh, so the, the general principle though, is that you want to move from a replicated system on the TPS side to a distributed system. So the problem we have right now is that regardless if you're Bitcoin or you're Ethereum, uh, the systems all run at the same pace where uh, basically you, you're, you're at the speed of what a single consensus node is capable of processing. You're not able to batch things and say, Alice gets one work unit and Bob gets a different work unit and Jim gets a different work unit. And then the performance of the system is the sum or, or some partial sum of all of their work as you chain things together. So that's the first major challenge is how do we go from a system where we're all replicated and we're all doing the same work, we're all working on the same math problem, we're all working on the same transaction Uh, to a system where we can do different things. The problem is the minute you go down that road, you lose a lot of really beautiful theoretical guarantees and you lose a lot of uh, simplicity in your system because now you have questions of availability. Like, let's say Alice is good and honest and Bob is great, but Jim is unreliable. If you're unlucky to have your transactions go to Jim's shard, they might not happen. So you have to kind of load balance then. Uh, and then also you lose a bit of security when you go from a replicated model to a distributed model. Generally, your Byzantine resistance goes to a third or in some cases even a quarter, depending upon the approaches you take. So, you know, these are challenges, but that's kind of the first major component. Now, this, the other two that I outlined the, in the video that I did in 2017, as you mentioned, uh, were the network side and the storage side. Well, this is another issue. You know, let's say you, you somehow can get to 500,000 transactions per second. Well, let's say those transactions are like a kilobyte or two kilobytes or something like that. You know, it's a humongous amount of data that you're talking about here. Uh, you know, and, and unless you have a fiber optic internet connection and you're, you're connected right at some of these backbone nodes of the internet, you're not going to be able to download that data at that pace. So how does grandma on her Wi-Fi router that's uh, you know, 1.5 MBS DSL uh, keep up to date with the network? Well, she can't. So effectively what it means is you, you basically segregate your network into a backbone of trusted 
people who kind of see everything, they're the gods of the system, and that everybody else just has to kind of accept that they're in charge. That no means is Satoshi's vision of this homogeneous decentralized system where everybody's equal and uh, everybody can replicate the network if you know one particular node goes down. So in a sense, uh, it does require a bit of creativity. Uh, you know, so you have to think instead of just a gossip protocol where you broadcast information to everyone, uh, you know, you say maybe a subscription system where there's a kind of a core set of information we're going to broadcast around. And that information is basically like proofs and representations of things. Uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, like a DHT. And you say, okay, well, I, if I see information, I can know I can verify that information is correct, but I'm not going to get the underlying information unless I care to see it. And then uh, finally, there's the storage side of things. And this is a big challenging open problem because it's both philosophical and technological. So the philosophical component of it is, well, you know, I'm probably going to want to throw some stuff away at some point. And there was no prescription from Satoshi or anyone in the space on an optimal way to do that. There was always this, this concept that we're going to start pruning at some point and some history will just be reduced to a hash and stored on chain but no longer propagated. But then, well, whose data is going to be that way? Like, for example, let's say you have a multi-currency ledger and you have thousands of assets that are on that ledger. Well, by Pareto principle, the odds are that the vast majority of those assets will be lightly used or a lot of them will die out and only a few of them will actually be used heavily. So at some point you'd like to retire an asset, right? Well, well which one do you get to retire? You know, that because eventually you're saying, well, Bob, you no longer have access to your money. Uh, but if you keep it forever, then you're creating a replicated storage cost to everybody in the system. You, every you know byte of data is multiplied by n nodes that's storing it. That's a humongous overhead. So a partial solution is to say, well, maybe we can go from a replicated database to a distributed database because you know we have all these sharded database solutions, and we can say, okay, we're going to build a big decentralized file system or or something like that, and and then as a consequence, uh, we can go from you know, terabytes to petabytes, and, and still any user would only have a few megabytes. I think there's a lot of technology to let us get there, and there's certainly some good ideas that have been well-funded in our space, and, you know, you can always adopt best available. But at the end of the day, you still also have to have a philosophical discussion about the, uh, the pruning of things. When can you throw away history, and uh, when can you retire certain things like smart contracts or... Uh, you know, other junk that's in the chain that probably doesn't need to be there anymore. So these technologies that you are working on, they all try to optimize the base layer, the first layer, so to say. Um, what is your opinion on layer two solutions like the Lightning Network or Raiden on the Ethereum blockchain? Yeah, so layer two is, is really inter interdependent with layer one. So it depends on what are you putting into the tube and, and how are you coordinating. Uh, and also, Uh, are, is this a layer two solution that is intended to wire together other ledgers, or is this a layer two that is a just a strictly uh, a solution provider to a single ledger? So this this is kind of like the abstract way of talking around layer two. So and also there's a question of permanence of the uh, layer two protocol. So we kind of differentiate these things um, in, uh, in in terms of ephemeral versus permanent. So if you look at protocols, uh, for example, like MPC. MPC is an example of a, uh, a finite protocol. So basically, uh, you see, let's say a poker game. 
what you would do with a Layer 2 MPC for a poker game is you'd have an entry and an exit point, and you'd use the blockchain as a, uh, a basically a trusted bulletin board to put uh, some state data and some hashes and other things like that. But then you would uh, you, uh, basically do all the, the cream filling, all the logic, off-chain. And uh, that runs as a private network maintained by the participants of the game. And then after the game terminates, basically people go back to the blockchain to collect their winnings and losses. So what's, what's happening there? Well, you have an entry point and an exit point. You're using the chain to, for people to find each other and as a trusted bulletin board. But the overhead to the system is quite light. And at the end of the day, the, that circuit is created and destroyed on demand. And so when you want to play, if you can find other people to do it, you're kind of hosting the thing yourself. Uh, so that's very decentralized, that's very private, and what's really nice is you can actually throw away almost everything, almost all the intermediate calculations, and all of that overhead for running that system is completely paid for by the, uh, the people running it. So as a consequence, you're kind of eating what you're killing. You're, you're, not, you're not really taking a lot of the network resources. So we've done some research there. We've written papers like Royale and um, Kaleidoscope that explain how you can do MPC uh, in these private ephemeral networks and run them off-chain. Now, that circuit is on demand, and it's destroyed on demand, so it's not really meant for blockchain interoperability or to be permanent infrastructure. It's not like it has an address, external parties can reach it and use it as a service. It's more of a thing that I create it, and uh, when I'm done with it, I'm done with it. Now, on the other side, you know, like Lightning or Plasma or these things, they're saying, okay, well, we really do want things to be distributed, and there there is hierarchy. So, you know, given that there are going to be people that are running powerful, beefy computers that are up 24-7 and they have static addresses that I can reach, well, maybe they want to offer a service to the system to do things, like facilitate atomic cross-chain swaps or to batch lots of microtransactions together or to run smart contracts. And so basically the name of the game there is can you federate this system in a way that you preserve many of the properties that we have come to know and love in the cryptocurrency space? So, for example, things like uh, censorship resistance, as well as privacy, or at least some degree of unlinkability with a transaction, uh, or that they can't interfere with the execution of a smart contract in some way, uh, make it malicious or something like that. So the challenge for layer two protocols for these persistent service providers is basically saying, well, how do we preserve what we already have and like, uh, but do so in a way where we can now have a trusted federation of actors. The advantage of having a known trusted federation of actors running these layer two protocols is first, you can upgrade them really quickly. So as advancements come, uh, it's easy to, to put them into the fray. Second, uh, they tend to be orders of magnitude faster than these very slow Byzantine-resistant um, uh, heavy protocols like proof-of-work or proof-of-stake. Uh, and so you basically can get a much higher TPS. Also, they can operate on different clusters of transactions, and as a result, you get a truly distributed system. So I think there's a great degree of merit to Lightning and to Plasma, and I think it's quite complementary uh, to all of the work that we're doing on the Layer 1 side of things. And what happens is that they provide good business requirements to layer one architecture saying, well, if you can support this particular transaction type or this data structure or, you know, you can parse this type of zero knowledge proof, blah, 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 these types of things, then it all of a sudden makes 
the layer two stuff go faster or preserve more of the properties we know and love, like privacy and uh, and uh, censorship resistance and so forth. One topic of research that Cardano particularly is very active on are sidechains, which are no layer two solutions, but rather, as I understand it, child blockchains of a main blockchain, for example, of the Cardano blockchain. And these um, child sidechains can have different properties than the main chain. So they can have um, uh, faster block times, for example, or a different consensus protocol or something like that. But they are all packed to the original currency of the main chain. So for Cardano, it would be uh, ADA. That's that's not quite right because that's that's okay. kind of a blockstream sidechains notion. And uh, and this it's quite unfortunate in, 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 that that this is, this term is so nebulous. See, when the first thing we were just trying to understand is, okay, I, I want to send some package from one ledger to another ledger. Let's call this an interledger transaction. I just want to send. Uh, uh, maybe a currency, maybe the state, maybe a, a little bit of information about what's going on, let's say, in Litecoin to Bitcoin. Okay, so when you send over that payload of information, let's say it's a currency, I'm moving some Litecoin to Bitcoin. Well, the people on the Bitcoin side, they, they have to basically answer two questions. One, is the money I'm getting actually real? Are these legitimate, true Litecoins? Second, even if they're real, have they been double spent? So, okay, so you would like to have a proof that's sent over with that information so that a validator on the receiving chain would be able to answer both of those questions with a reasonable degree of certainty and then say, okay, well, uh, now that I know that it's real money and it hasn't been double spent, that I can now use that currency as a first-class citizen on the other chain, on Bitcoin, for example, then I should be able to send it back at some point to Litecoin. Now you'll notice something, this doesn't actually require a master-slave style of consensus. Like for example, saying, well, uh, basically the Litecoin has to be pegged to the Bitcoin. So what Blockstream did is that they kind of have an investment um, Bitcoin maximalist viewpoint. So their whole point is, let's make everything master-slave to Bitcoin. So if we like Ethereum, let's create a ledger there and peg it to Bitcoin or something like that. But the research that we've done with sidechains is much more abstract where we say, look, we want to firewall these ledgers from each other, and we don't want to make some presumption like one chain controls the consensus of another chain, or one chain is reliant on another chain. Rather, we just want to talk in, a, in basically a proof payload saying, what is the minimum viable amount of information required to send from one ledger to another ledger, such that the receiving ledger is actually able to verify that that information is accurate, and the transaction it's looking at is correct. Now, what that ledger does with that is up to that ledger. For example, you could create some sort of multi-currency system that when you send Litecoin to my ledger, it creates kind of like Cardano's version of Litecoin, and then you can use it in the system, and then you destroy it to, to move it back. And if both protocols support that, Litecoin and, and Cardano, then now you can actually talk to each other and, and combining these transactions together, you can facilitate swaps between the two systems, and they're trustless because basically they're non-interactive proofs that are being generated by the user. They're sent as a normal transaction and the other system actually knows how to parse and understand that and validate that without relying upon some trusted data feeder checkpoint or central third party. 
if you would create these sidechains or this interoperability between different blockchains, you could basically cut out the exchanges that now handle the swapping of um, currencies between blockchains. Is that correct? Yeah, and, that, and that's probably a, a direction we're going to end up going in, especially for Tom cross-chain swaps. Uh, you know, there's certain jurisdictions that are making liquidity quite difficult for cryptocurrencies. For example, uh, I think it's Thailand just... They had a list of seven official currencies, and they've just removed three, including Ethereum Classic. So I think the counterbalance to this overreach that's occurring in certain jurisdictions is to create a DEX and make that DEX easy for the uh, end user to use. In my view, uh, DEXs at the moment are probably best suited for low frequency, high latency, uh, smaller amounts with higher spreads for local Bitcoin style things. But then over time, once that infrastructure gets constructed, you can put things in to accelerate them and eventually actually take over what exchanges are doing. And it's not a coincidence that a lot of exchanges are looking at the DEXs and trying to figure out ways to, to monetize the DEX because uh, they understand that in the next five or 10 years, um, this can become potentially the dominant trade. Your project, the Cardano project, is a very generic blockchain. And what you also tell me now is that you try to keep your research and your development as generic as possible so that end users or other developers can then pick that up there and build their own special solutions, their custom solutions. Um, however, there are also different kind of blockchains. So permission blockchains, private blockchains, you know, you mentioned Ripple, for example, or Hyperledger Indie by IMM. IBM. What is your opinion on permissioned blockchains and private blockchains? Do they have a place or will they go away? I don't think so. Actually, I think the golden age of permission ledgers is coming. You know, it's really bizarre to me when people run around and say, oh, permission ledgers are useless and they, they serve no purpose at all. And it's all just magic and kabuki. And you can solve these problems with a database. Like, guys, you obviously have no understanding of supply chain management. Or, or, or when you're dealing with federated business alliances. Like, just think of a couple of different, or let's, let's use three different quick examples, like medical records. So you as a consumer travel. You go from one state to another state, one province to another province, one country to another country. And what happens when you get sick in Switzerland or get sick in Italy or get sick in Ethiopia? Don't you think the doctors in that hospital or that clinic are probably going to want to know some of your medical history so they can properly treat you? So how do we transmit your medical records from one entity to another entity? So do you think your hospital your, or your clinic in your home state trusts some Ethiopian hospital or trusts some Italian hospital that they've never been to, they know nothing about? In some cases, there's laws preventing them from trusting it? Of course not. So... When you talk about blockchain in the enterprise setting, you're saying, look, the name of the game here isn't that hospitals are magically appearing and disappearing all the time and it's a completely decentralized ledger. The name of the game here is we have a collection of known regulated entities that have to coordinate for the greater good of consumers, whether that be moving medical data or that be going from one cell phone network to another network, you're roaming on, let's say, T-Mobile to AT&T to Verizon, and you're a T-Mobile customer, but you have to use Verizon bandwidth. You know, all of these agreements have a social contract. They have the flow of assets and information, and the consumer needs these things to be standardized and behave in a predictable way so that we can understand what are the security implications, the economic implications of using these systems, and make sure that they work correctly. 
So the whole point of a permission blockchain is to have that discussion about how are we going to coordinate all of these different actors that don't necessarily want to work together, but have to work together because their customers are moving between these different entities. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is people can cheat all the time. Supply chains, you have cheating. You know, let's say you're moving coffee beans from the farmer to the exchange or to the washing station. Well, you know, there, you would like to get some sort of Byzantine resistance as you're moving that supply chain from A to B to C to D and checks and balances and verification that certain things were followed. The same for accounting. Like when you're trying to reconcile books in a big multinational company, let's say you're Samsung or Sony, you have dozens of divisions. It costs you a hell of a lot of money to actually get all your books to balance at the end of the year because you have all these different ledgers and they're all following these different standards. And at some point you, you can eventually aggregate up and then say, okay, I roughly think the company has this much money, plus or minus this delta. Well, if you put all those things as a blockchain, uh, then you're in a situation where you can do real-time continuous auditing and have triple entry accounting. And when you do a reconciliation, it's damn near instant and it's auditable. Well, let's say, well, it doesn't make any sense at all to run this in a permissionless setting. God, no. What, does Samsung want Sony to look at its books and have some control over what they can put in their accounting entries? No, it's just you have different divisions that may have an incentive to cheat the, at the employee level or at the division level, and you're using a permission system to keep all of these different people uh, in check. I think where people also get confused is they think that somehow blockchains replace databases. They don't. They're used in concert with databases. They're, they're interoperable with them. The point of a blockchain is coordinating a social contract, coordinating some business logic between entities and verifying that that logic has been followed and it's auditable and it's immutable and it's timestamped. It's not meant for big data. It's not meant to store terabytes or, giga or petabytes or exabytes of information. It's just meant to say that when you are storing those petabytes and terabytes and exabytes of information, that you can verify that it hasn't been changed or manipulated, or you know that the people who wrote it are who they say they are. You see the difference there? So you put these systems together. You put fabric with Postgres. You put fabric with Cassandra and these other systems. You wouldn't say fabric somehow replaces these systems. And I think that's a big conflation. So I think that we need to have a more mature and reasonable discussion about the relationship between permissionless ledgers and permissioned ledgers. And we need to look at them as one ecosystem and it's a spectrum. And you say, if you are entering a permission system like an exchange or you're entering a, a, you know, a system like a server client relationship or somebody holding your health data, this is not an environment that makes any sense at all for a permission ledger, regardless of its capabilities or performance. This is a situation where you're going to have a collection of known actors who curate it, and you're interfacing with it and getting a guarantee that those actors will be held accountable to a common business logic. And then when you leave that system, you go into a dynamic system, and there you gain censorship resistance, and there you get dynamicism, and there you get, uh, you know, basically consensus nodes popping in and out, and you may even be able to control some part of that system. And, you know, and that has a different purpose in a place. And not to say you can't use these systems together, like, for example, Samsung can, when they close their books, take a checkpoint of it, and then post that as a hash on Ethereum, or on Bitcoin, or on Cardano, for example. 
So they have an additional layer of anchoring and security saying that somehow, some way, our internal system gets compromised. We still have an external system that we can use to verify and validate everything. But for the sake of control and performance and rapid upgrading of the business logic and not having to use some sort of bizarro token, which we can't predict the price of, uh, we're going to run our own system because they have every right to do that. Yeah. So we talked about scalability, sidechains, interoperability, permission blockchains, and so on. But those are topics that already have been discussed for two, three, four or five years even. Do you already have a technology in mind or a concept that will become very, very important in like five or 10 years from now, which, but which we don't really see right now? Well, one thing I'd really like to see uh, that's super, super exciting to me is this concept of doing outsourceable computation. Uh, so this is something that's been studied for a while in academia, like MSR did uh, a paper called Pinocchio. And I do talk about it from time to time. But basically the idea is saying, okay, I, I have a pile of computation I want done. So here's some data and here's some computation I want done on that data. Okay. So in the replicated model, the Ethereum model, you, you'd hand it to the EVM and say, all right, entire global computer, you do all this magical work, and then uh, by consensus, we'll eventually derive an answer. But you'd much rather be able to say, look, I have a marketplace, whoever's going to do it, the fastest and the cheapest, uh, you know, some ratio of those two parameters, you just go do it, and I, and I pay a fee for that. Okay, so you hand it to Bob. Well, why don't we do that? Well, because Bob can cheat. Like you say, Bob fold all these proteins. Well, Bob can just give you junk. And, you know, the only way to verify that those proteins were correctly folded is you have to refold them. So what Pinocchio and these other frameworks are all about is saying, well, why don't we try to proof of work these types of things where you can do an expensive computation, you can solve that problem, but then at the same time you generate a proof that you've solved the problem correctly. And that proof is much easier to validate. It's either constant or logarithmic time to validate. And that proof is very small. So that, I think, is like the holy grail of next generation smart contracts. So you get everything with that. You get privacy, because that's a huge problem with smart contracts right now. You know, if, if I'm running uh, you know, some calculation on Ethereum, everybody gets to see it. So there's, by definition, no privacy at the moment there. But if I run it on a, uh, you know, a private server, then the only people who know it are me and that server. And then eventually you can add in other solutions like, uh, you know, uh, homomorphic encryption or, you know, you know, code obfuscation and other things to, to try to, to you know, increase your level of privacy. But then, you know, you get a proof and that proof can be verified as a service on a permissionless system like Ethereum or Cardano. Uh, so I, I really would love to see these techniques uh, get more sophisticated and, and be dragged in. And it allow us to have much more meaningful distributed marketplaces for computation. And it also means that you get a much more realistic model for how to use ledgers like Ethereum or like Cardano. So instead of saying they're giant computers in the sky and we're going to replace the entire internet with them, they're basically proof checking mechanisms. So you write into your application that the server is going to do all this stuff, it's going to generate a proof, and that proof has to be checked by this trusted third, this uh, ledger. And as long as those two components are there, then you accept the output and pay the person. Um, the time's up. I would ask you just one last question, how people can contact you, right? If you want to um, mention the IOHK Summit, mm -hmm. that's fine. Oh, sure, me. sure. Yeah, actually, uh, so, so some context here. Every year, we, we run a distributed company at IOHK. So we, we operate in 16 countries and we have more than 150 people and a lot of university partners. And so... Uh, the benefit of that is we get to work with the best and the brightest, and I get to travel and see a lot of cool different places. But the downside is that uh, our people 
tend to get a little siloed. And so well, every year we bring our entire company together. It's a very expensive affair, but we do it because it, it really builds a lot of camaraderie. And uh, we've been doing it for a few years now. And, and every time we do it, the community keeps saying, hey, if, if you opened it up to the general public, if we would buy tickets. So we said, well, why don't we actually do that? So uh, this is the first time we're actually opening up our summit. Uh, it's going to be April 17th and 18th. The, the entire company is going to be there, everybody from Duncan to Phil Wadler to Agalos to myself. Uh, and we're going to have a lot of cool guests from uh, the external community. So some of our competitors, some permission blockchain people, a lot of scientists. Uh, we also have Stephen Wolfram coming from Mathematica, if you're a fan of his work. Uh, Rudy Rucker is coming. And if you buy a VIP ticket, we'll even have two musical guests, uh, Steve Miller Band and uh, CCR. Uh, so if you're if you like the Joker and Fortunate Son, uh, there you go. So anyway, April seventeenth, eighteenth in Miami. It's going to be a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, if you go to iowhksummit.io, you can see the full agenda and the, and the full list. And, and uh, if people want to contact you, where can they do that? The easiest way of doing it's over Telegram or Twitter. Uh, so Twitter, it's at uh, iohk underscore charles. Uh, iohk stands for Input Output Hong Kong underscore Charles. And on Telegram, it's uh, it's just IOHK Charles, all one word. And yeah, you can put those in the show notes. To the listeners, if you want to learn more about Cardano and the research, I personally find the YouTube channel also very, very interesting, particularly the whiteboard sessions. All right, Charles, this has been a very interesting interview. Thank you very much for coming. A lot of fun. Thank you for the opportunity.